In his prayer after communion, Carl used the word endgame. And this is a great weekend to use the word endgame. Because a lot of people who were dozing off were just kind of like, huh, what, Avengers? What did I miss? Don't spoil it. So, But thank you for being here and not going to see Avengers at this particular moment. I'm sure there are lots of showings later in the day. Now, we often refer to things that people have forgotten how to do as lost arts. And what we mean by this, we're usually referring to skills, practices, and priorities that, as times change, fall out of style or fall out of favor. And so we begin to neglect them because we have new or more efficient ways of accomplishing the same goal. And so eventually we stop teaching people how to do these things. We no longer value them the way we once did. And then finally, we just abandon them entirely. And these old skills, practices, and priorities are relegated to the dustbin of history. These things that were once so important, nobody cares about anymore. Nobody knows how to do them anymore. Now, for example, you may have heard people disgusted that upcoming generations don't know how to write. We don't know how to write in cursive. We don't know how to write letters. Some of us don't even know how to write checks. Another example is reading. We complain that people no longer have the attention span to read long books or articles, basically anything more than a tweet or a Facebook post. We complain that people don't know how to read maps because they rely on the GPS on our phones too much. We complain that no one knows how to drive a stick We get annoyed when the cashier doesn't know how to count change without the register doing the math for them. And we lament that people are so glued to screens that we don't even know how to have face-to-face conversations. There are things that at one time seemingly everyone knew how to do. Everyone recognized how important these things were. But not anymore. These skills, these practices, these priorities become lost arts. Now, when you hear someone complain about the youths not knowing how to do all the things that they used to know how to do, you may dismiss that person as old, cranky, behind the times, and scared of change. And the truth is that sometimes you're right. There are lost arts that deserve to be abandoned. Some lost arts should stay lost. For example, you probably shouldn't go to a doctor who specializes in the lost arts of applying blood-sucking leeches to their patients. That art can stay lost. But those people who lament that these days we don't know how to do certain things that everyone knew how to do in the past, well, sometimes they're right to complain. Sometimes they're right to worry. Because there are old skills and old practices that we've abandoned that shouldn't have been abandoned. There are old priorities and old experiences that should still matter to us today. There are lost arts that we neglect to our detriment and to the detriment of those people around us. There are some lost arts that we should work to recover. Now, that's true of life in general, but in this sermon series, I want to focus on some of the lost arts of the Christian life. Lost arts that we would be wise to remember. There are important, beneficial, and God-honoring skills, practices, priorities, and experiences that Scripture encourages or even commands. 
that Christians throughout history have valued. And yet we Christians today have neglected them or maybe even abandoned them entirely. And we would do well to recover these lost arts. Doing it may not be easy, but I believe it will be worth the effort. So open up to Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take one home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for not just Easter Sunday, but the Sunday after Easter. Uh, As Joshua mentioned, every single Sunday we have reason to worship. Every single Sunday we have reason to praise. Every single second of every minute of every hour of every day we have reason to worship you. And Father, thank you for the privilege of coming together and worshiping you corporately as a body this morning. And Father, I pray that you would grow us, shape us, convict us, challenge us, comfort us, remind us, do all the things that we know your word will do and can do. And Father, I pray that you would use this morning and use the scriptures that we'll read to build us up as individual believers, uh, but also build us up as a church. And Father, we simply give you all our worship We thank you for your son who lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. Father, may we honor him every day of our lives. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, there's a lot in those three verses as Paul writes to the Philippians, this church that he loves so much, encourages them to abound in love more and more and more. But the lost art of the Christian life that we'll focus on today is just one word from those three verses. And it's the word discernment. Discernment. Now, what exactly is discernment? Well, if you've ever sat in a Bible study for any length of time, you've probably heard someone ask for prayer about how to handle some really difficult situation they're in. Or they've asked for prayer about a big decision that they need to make, and they just don't know what they're going to do. And then when it comes time to pray, the person leading the Bible study will ask God to give them wisdom and discernment. Wisdom and discernment. We often tie wisdom and discernment together. And that's okay, because Scripture often does the same thing. For example, Proverbs 16.21 says, The wise of heart is called discerning. The wise of heart is called discerning. Hosea 14.9, at the very end of the entire book, It says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. In other words, the author is saying that if you read these words, if you are wise and understanding, you will hear what God is saying. And you will understand what God is saying. 
and you will obey what God is calling you to do. And then Hebrews 4.12, a passage that many of us know well, but we don't often focus on discernment. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, in this day and age, in our world, we can get by on words and appearances and actions, and people don't always know what's going on in our heads. They don't always know what's going on in our hearts. We can get away with a lot. But according to Hebrews 4.12, God sees through it. God sees the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He discerns us. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament hold discernment in high regard. But again, what exactly is discernment? What do we mean when we say that word? Webster's Dictionary defines discernment as the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. Being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. So if we take that definition, you might think of a discerning person as someone who has good judgment, someone who has good instincts, strong insights. We may think of them as someone who follows their gut, and more often than not, their gut is right. There are a few different words in the biblical languages that can be translated as discernment. And these words all seem to indicate that a discerning person is someone of great knowledge. Someone able to recognize what is genuine versus what is fake. Someone who puts things to the test before they deem them worthy. And through that testing, they're able to discover what's worthy and what's not. So if you put it all together, in short... Discernment could be called an ability to see through things, an ability to separate the good from the bad. Now, most of us, I think, recognize good discernment when we see it. Someone who invested in Apple or Amazon when no one else expected them to be successful, that person might be described as a discerning investor. They saw something that other people didn't. They acted upon it. And they were rewarded for it in the end. Another good example comes from December 26, 2004. That was when Tilly Smith, a 10-year-old girl on a beach vacation with her family in Thailand, noticed that the tide was doing some really strange things. And so she remembered a lesson from her geography class, excuse me, about tsunamis. And so when she saw the tide doing these weird things, she begged her family to get off the beach and go inland. And they did. And they survived that tsunami, all because a 10-year-old girl noticed something that other people didn't. And she was able to discern what was coming next. But then we can also think of plenty of examples of bad discernment. You're not practicing good discernment when you wire money to the Nigerian prince who emailed you. That's not good discernment. Another example is that not long ago I heard a car dealer on the radio saying that if you bring home $350 per month, you can be approved for a $30,000 loan. Well, I hate to break it to you, but if you're only making $4,200 per year, it's not very wise. It's not very discerning. To buy a $30,000 car. Now those are relatively small scale examples. 
of poor discernment. Those are things that you can bounce back from. But on a larger scale, poor discernment can have tragic consequences. Some European leaders thought that if they just let Hitler take a few small countries, he'd leave the big countries alone. Just throw him a bone. Appease him a little bit. Well, that's not what happened. Those European leaders lacked discernment. And as a result, they enabled one of history's greatest monsters. So discernment is a big deal. It can have major, major consequences. So scripture closely associates discernment and wisdom. And we know that discernment can be defined as the ability to see through things and separate the good from the bad. But why do we Christians especially need to recover the lost art of discernment? So why do we need discernment? Well, a few reasons. When God created our world, it was good. That's what the book of Genesis tells us. And by his grace, there are still good things in our world. However, we also know that our world is fallen. And that means that there are some not-so-good things in our world as well. And so we need discernment to help us know which things to choose, which things to pursue, which things to love, which things to value and prioritize. We need discernment to distinguish good teachers from bad teachers, truth from error, sound doctrine from false doctrine, and the one true God from idols. If we're going to do what Paul tells us to do in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, if we're going to think about what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent and worthy of praise, we will need discernment to do what Paul tells us to do. Discernment helps us recognize what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise, Versus the things that are not. We live in a world full of mixed and competing messages. Mixed and competing messages about God. Mixed and competing messages about us. Mixed and competing messages about everything else. And so it's incredibly important that we're able to sift through the messiness of our world. Like we're sitting on the side of a river. Sifting through the dirt and the sand to try and find what's precious. In this river of mixed messages that is our world, it is very easy to fall for fool's gold. Things that might seem true, but are really false. Things that appear to be good, but are really evil. Things that might seem like they're from God, but they actually aren't. Henry Nguyen says that discernment is about distinguishing good guidance from harmful messages and the Holy Spirit from evil spirits. This essential sorting is intended for our protection and not our judgment. In other words, good discernment is not some limiting, oppressive thing. It's for our good. It's for our safety so that we might recognize what is good from what is harmful, the Holy Spirit from evil spirits. But then we also need discernment because we're constantly faced with decisions and issues that Scripture doesn't clearly speak to. Now, thankfully, there are lots of things that Scripture does speak clearly about. 
There are lots of times when Scripture does the work for you. For example, you don't need discernment to decide whether or not you should cheat on your spouse. You don't need discernment to decide whether or not you should rob a bank or whether or not you should murder your neighbor who yells at their dog at 3 a.m., maybe last night, but just an illustration. The point is that there are some situations and there are some times where Scripture has already done the discerning for you. God has already made the judgment clear. You don't really have to decide or debate anything. It's simply your job to obey. But again, Scripture doesn't speak clearly to every situation we find ourselves in. It doesn't always address every decision that we're faced with. Should you take that job on the other side of the country, or should you stay close to family? Where should you go to college? How should you save for retirement? Who should you vote for? A good example is how should we address the issue of poverty? Anyone who reads scripture can come away with the conviction that, hey, God cares about the poor. There is no debate about that from the Old Testament or the New Testament. But where discernment comes in is how exactly to do it. Do you do it through individual charity or through government programs? Do you do it through nonprofits? Do you teach people skills or do you give people money? There is no debate that Christians should care about the poor. But there is debate and discernment is required for how exactly to do that. So we don't always have a go-to chapter and verse from the Bible for everything that we encounter in life. There are times that we don't get a clear sign from God on what to do. There are times when we do not hear an audible voice telling us what to choose. And so in moments like that, we need discernment. So again, discernment is a good thing in the pages of Scripture. And there are good, practical reasons to pursue it. We live in a world full of both good and bad, and Scripture doesn't always give us easy, step-by-step directions on how to make every decision that we're faced with. So we need discernment. No doubt about that. But then the next question is, how do we get it? How do we get discernment? Is discernment something that we're born with? Is it a unique gift from God that some Christians may have and others don't? Or is discernment a skill that we can learn and develop and improve upon and get better at? Well, I think the answer to all of those questions may be yes. I have no problem believing that God has given some people an uncommon gift of wisdom and discernment. And if so, praise God for those people. Hopefully you know some of them. But it's also clear in Scripture that discernment is something that every Christian, that all of God's people, are called to pursue and cultivate. We can develop discernment by studying Scripture itself, because even though the Bible may not clearly address every situation you find yourself in, being steeped and aware of God's Word will make you more wise. I have no doubt about that. We can develop discernment by looking at the examples of Christians who have gone before us. What did they do? How did they pray? What conclusions did they come to when they were in a similar situation? 
We can develop discernment by surrounding ourselves with Christians who are older, wiser, and more experienced than we are. We can ask for their help. We can learn from them. And then don't forget that we have the Holy Spirit himself leading this growth, bearing this fruit in our lives. The Holy Spirit himself can help us grow in wisdom and grow in discernment for the glory of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That word try is so important. It indicates that discernment is something that you need to practice, something that you need to work at, something that you can get better at. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. In other words, if you want to grow in discernment, ask God to grow you in discernment. Pray that God would give you wisdom to handle the situations you find yourselves in. And then Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, one thing we learn from Romans 12 is that being people of godly discernment may not win us any popularity contests. In fact, as Paul says in that passage, godly discernment may rub against the wisdom of this world. It may fly in the face of worldly wisdom. But godly discernment, while it may not be easy, and while it will make us different from the world in some significant ways, it is still worth pursuing. Because we're after the will of God not the will of the world. We're seeking what is good and acceptable and perfect, not what is passing away. So we've covered what it is, we've covered why we need it, and we've given some suggestions on how exactly to get discernment. But then last but not least, what are the benefits of discernment? Well, I'll name a few. Discernment can allow us to live with a sense of peace, confidence and assurance that maybe we wouldn't have had before now that's not to say that discernment will automatically make your life a cakewalk it won't however there is great peace in laying your head down at night and being confident that while you are not perfect you know what the will of the lord is and you've pursued it even when you've fallen short of the goal on top of that discernment can lead to flourishing for us and for those around us. Now, the goal of discernment is not just success. We don't try to make godly decisions just so our lives will be better. But generally speaking, discerning people are more likely to flourish by God's standards because they recognize what God's will for humanity is and strive to live in accordance with that will. You know, we can probably all think of fellow believers who are kind and humble and generous. Believers who display many wonderful, godly virtues. And yet their lives are a mess because of their lack of wisdom and their lack of discernment. It's heartbreaking, it's frustrating to see fellow believers suffer because of their own unforced errors. Those people are often the opposite of flourishing, They're floundering 
And they don't have to be. Now, discernment may not fix everything. And sometimes bad things happen to even the wisest and most thoughtful people. Things outside of our control. But there are many Christians dealing with self-inflicted suffering through our own poor decisions. And a good dose of discernment would do wonders for them and would do wonders for those around them. And then last, living with discernment glorifies God. In Colossians 1, 9 and 10, Paul prays that the Christians in that church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Which certainly sounds a lot like discernment. And Paul prays this for them in order that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In other words, that they might glorify God. Way back in the first passage we read, Philippians 1, Paul says, Pursue discernment, abound with discernment, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We live with discernment not just for our good, not just so our lives will be better or more successful, but we do it for the glory of God. We do it that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, that all sounds good. I've certainly spent a pretty good amount of time talking up discernment. But I also think it would be wise for us to acknowledge some of the limitations of discernment and maybe issue a couple of warnings about discernment. So here's one warning. Discernment is not just negative. And here's what I mean by that. We sometimes practice discernment with a very defensive posture, as if the only point of discernment is to help us avoid all the nasty, evil, sinful, impure things of our world. And you know what? There is something to that. That is a big part of discernment. But we need to remember that discernment doesn't stop there. We discern evil from good, not just so we can avoid the evil, but so we can recognize the good. We discern truth from error, not just so that we can avoid the error, but so that we can more joyfully and confidently embrace the truth. Author Hannah Anderson says, Discernment simply means developing a taste for what's good. It's developing an instinct for quality, a refined sensibility, an eye for value, to know the difference between what's good and what's not, in order to partake of the good. So again, discernment is not just knowing what's bad and what's good. It's about pursuing the good when we've discerned what that good is. Another warning is that being discerning is not the same as being cynical or hypercritical. So believe it or not, contrary to the bubbly and joyful reputation I've developed around here, I often find myself wrestling with the temptation to be exceedingly negative, to assume the worst about people, assume the worst about situations, about things, about ideas. You can ask Olivia, I can be a real Eeyore sometimes. So you name it, I've done it. I've assumed the worst about it. I'm cynical about a lot of things. And it's easy for me to justify that sinful cynicism by saying, 
oh, I'm not trying to be overly negative. I'm just trying to be discerning. I'm just trying to be discerning. Well, one thing that I need to remember, and maybe some of you need to remember as well, is that discernment is not a cover for cynicism. Discernment is not just justification for a hermeneutic of suspicion where we question everything, doubt everything, criticize everything, and trust no one. That's not discernment. That is cynicism. Something that I need to repent of, and maybe you need to repent of as well. And take it from someone who is tempted to be cynical all the time. It's no way to live, and it's not discernment. And then one more warning is that discernment, as good as it is, as valuable as it is, it will not save you. Solomon was known as the wisest man who ever lived. As he prepared to take the throne as a young man, he specifically asked God for wisdom, and God gave it to him. And over time, Solomon proved himself to be incredibly discerning. He gained a worldwide reputation for his wisdom. And yet, for all of his discernment, Solomon still managed to fall into sin. He was greedy, he was lustful, he was arrogant. And his rebellion against God did great harm to him, great harm to his family, and great harm to his nation. So do you have the gift of discernment? Great. Have you worked hard to grow in and nurture discernment? Awesome. But that doesn't mean you won't fall. Your discernment, while it is a wonderful virtue that you should pursue and cultivate and share with others and share with the church, it won't save you. It won't save you. Only Christ the epitome of God's wisdom. The most discerning man who ever lived can do that. In John 2, we read that many people believed in Jesus. And yet John says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. That's a chilling verse when you read it. That Jesus was able to look through, see through, discern the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of those around him. And to this very day, Jesus still sees through you. And he still sees through me. He discerns us. He sees our sin, our rebellion, our recklessness, our selfishness, all the skeletons in our closets. And yet the beauty of God's grace is that he, the perfect son of God, discerning everything awful about us, still proceeded to die on the cross for our sins. So your discernment and my discernment can't save us. Only Christ can do that. Pursue it, seek it, ask God for discernment, but don't trust in it for your salvation. It is a good virtue. It's a godly work. But sadly, it seems to be a lost art. So may we as individual Christians, may we as a church together work to recover it. May we seek it out. May we pray for it. May we encourage each other towards it. May we surround ourselves with people who have it. Not just so that we will be more successful. Not just so our lives will be easier. Not for the praise of men. Amazed at how wise we are 
But may we pursue discernment so that we and those around us might flourish. May we pursue discernment so that God would be glorified, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. May we remember its limitations. May we remember its benefits. And may we remember that we are saved not by our discernment, not by our wisdom, but rather by the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross that flies in the face of the wisdom of the world. May we pursue discernment because Christ was discerning. May we pursue discernment for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for discernment. You've given many people in this church discernment. There are wise people here who have served this church faithfully, who have given wonderful counsel and and guidance and offered helpful prayers up for this body of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless all of us with discernment. I pray that we would work at it, that we would try to discern what is your will, that we would get better at it, that we would grow in it for your glory, for the good of this church, and for the good of those around us. And Father, I pray that we would remember that while our discernment will not save us, it is still a wonderful thing to pursue. So Father, help us to pursue it faithfully. And Father, again, thank you for revealing so much about yourself to us, that there is so much about you that we don't have to wrestle with or debate or discern. There are so many things that you've made clear for us in your word. You've graciously revealed yourself to us. Father, help us be more confident in those things, to know those things better. But Father, also to give us discernment in the things that your word doesn't speak clearly about. That even when we encounter tough situations and difficult questions and confusing circumstances, that we would still make godly decisions. That we would still make choices and judgments that bring you glory and ultimately benefit our neighbors, benefit us, and benefit our fellow believers. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for your wisdom, which far far exceeds our own. But Father, we ask you to give us wisdom as well. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.